We want to welcome you to the Bible teaching ministry of Fellowship Bible Church, where our desire is to honor God by faithful obedience to His Word. If you want to understand the Bible better, please continue to listen as Pastor Matt Postiff explains and applies the biblical text one verse at a time. You can reach us with questions or for more teaching audio and print material at our website, fbcaa.org. You can also watch our services live at fbcaa.org live. We want to thank you for listening and pray that you will be edified. Join us now as Pastor Postiff opens God's Word. Welcome tonight. If you're viewing online, we're grateful that you're doing that. We're turning our Bibles to the Minor Prophets again. I just finished reading through all the Minor Prophets. I'm going to be speaking on them this coming weekend, and uh, not all of them, mind you, but uh, some of them. And so I've been spending some time in each one. We're in Zephaniah. I'm giving a message on Zephaniah in uh, one, I'll have to now call it one set of notes because this is part two. So this is the second message of the title, Zephaniah and One Message. So it's actually it was half last time and the other half this time. How about that? So half plus half is one. Um, so we looked at uh, kind of the general pattern of the, uh, some of these minor prophets, which uh, follows really the pattern of the major prophets as well. There's a number of elements like calls to repentance, uh, charges given against the nation, uh, oracles of judgment uh, levied against uh, both Israel and Judah, but also the other surrounding nations. And uh, so we looked at that and how God is going to uh, judge in the day of the Lord. Talked a little bit about the day of the Lord, whether it's near or far uh, in various contexts or what it's about. Um, we ended last time, as I recall, with the call to repentance in chapter 2, verses 1 to 3, where uh, God tells them through Zephaniah to gather themselves together uh, before the decree is issued, before the Lord's fierce anger comes upon you, before the day of the Lord's anger comes on you, to seek the Lord, all you meek of the earth. And perhaps, he says, perhaps it may be that you will be hidden in the day of the Lord's anger. We have some more specific promises than that for us as Christians, we believe, to uh, withhold us from participation in the great day of God's wrath called the tribulation. But for them, there was the danger of collateral damage, collateral judgment, if you will, when the, uh, when the, the lights went out, so to speak, and the judgment uh, came upon them. So, um, and this is a th repeated theme Again, you know, you have Assyria judging the nation of the, the northern kingdom, Babylon, the southern kingdom. Egypt was used sometimes to judge the southern kingdom. And, uh, and then, of course, the surrounding neighbors in the post-exile period were uh, always a thorn in the side as well. Let's go to chapter 2, verse number 4, please. Chapter 2 and uh, verse number 4. It says, and, and so this text here, begins a section from 4 through 15, the rest of chapter 2, really, verses 4 to 15, on judgment against the nations. And texts like this have a particularly um, pointed strength in days like we're in right now because uh, the present-day nation of Israel finds itself under attack from practically every direction except for the Mediterranean Sea. 
uh, at least presently. Uh, the West, uh, the Southwest, the, the uh, East, the North, they're facing all kinds of trouble. And God gives a kind of um, a judgment, a sweep of judgment, if you will, around the surrounding nations. So look, for example, at verse 4. For Gaza shall be forsaken and Ashkelon desolate. They shall drive out Ashdod at noonday and Ekron shall be uprooted. One, two, three, four. And then Gath is the other one, I think. Did we say that or was I in a different context when I asked that question? The the cities of the Philistines, remember? Gaza is squarely in the city, uh, in the uh, region of the Philistines. Um as all the rest of those. And so isn't it ironic today that in the same area, physical area, you have not Philistines, but Palestinians, Palestinians. I I did that hesitation on purpose because you see that the land was renamed Palestine by the Romans to spite the Jews in the 100s A.D., when they took over the land, and that name of Palestine has stuck since then. But this is not, there's not anything to do with Palestine. It's Jewish land there. In any case, uh, woe to the inhabitants of the seacoast, the nation of the Cherethites. The word of the Lord is against you, O Canaan, land of the Philistines. I will destroy you so so there shall be no inhabitant. The seacoast shall be pastures with shelters for shepherds and folds for flocks. The coast shall be for the remnant of the house of Judah. They shall feed their flocks there in the houses of Ashkelon. They shall lie down at evening. For the Lord their God will intervene for them and return their captives. Now, obviously, a Jewish person today would love to latch on to that as a promise for, hey, I want my family members who are captive to be returned. Uh, I want to take over that land and have it just be, be rid of all this problem, all this, you know, this huge launching pad for thousands of rockets against the nation of Israel. Let's just take it over and get it over with. But uh, this promise is for another time, not for the present day. Uh, God has said here in verse 8, I have heard the reproach of Moab and the insults of the people of Ammon with which they have reproached my people and made arrogant threats against their borders. Therefore, as I live, says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, surely Moab shall be like Sodom and the people of Ammon like Gomorrah, overrun with weeds and salt pits and a perpetual desolation. The residue of my people shall plunder them and the remnant of my people shall possess them. Notice that God is going to raise up the seed, the remnant of Israel, and they're going to have victory over their enemies in these areas. This they shall have for their pride, the they here being the uh, nations, because they have reproached and made arrogant threats against the people of the Lord of hosts. Now, what, this is why I say it's so pointed today. What's different about this 2,500 years ago, more or less, and what's happening today? The people are making arrogant threats against uh, the nation of Israel, They have reproached them. The Lord will be awesome to them, for he will reduce to nothing all the gods of the earth. People shall worship him, each one from his place, indeed all the shores of the nations. You Ethiopians also shall be slain by my sword, and he will stretch out his hand against the north. 
Destroy Assyria and make Nineveh a desolation, as dry as the wilderness. The herds shall lie down in her midst. Every beast of the nation, both the pelican and the bittern, shall lodge on the capitals of her pillars. Their voices shall sing in the windows. Desolation shall be at the threshold, for he will lay bare the cedar work. This is the rejoicing city that dwelt securely, that said in her heart, I am it, and there is none beside me. How she has become a desolation, a place for beasts to lie down. Everyone who passes by her shall hiss and shake his fist. Now, what is all that about, those last verses? What city or what nation? Did you catch that? Assyria, Nineveh, yeah. So we begin with Gaza, the Philistine cities. We uh, talk about, um, one second here. We talk about uh, the Cherethites. Who are the Cherethites? Somehow connected to the Philistines, but farther to the west. Perhaps uh, seacoast indicating that they were Mediterranean types out on the... uh, high seas and out in the uh, islands of the Sea of the Great Sea. These lands will be overtaken by God on behalf of Judah. Then Moab and Ammon are called out for their insults against uh, Judah. Uh, God's going to flatten them like Sodom and Gomorrah, and they, uh, the people of God will take over those territories as well as the people who remain of those nations will worship the true God. In verse number 12, there's just a very brief reference to the nation of Ethiopia, which is very, almost kind of strange, but, you know, in that part of the world, Ethiopia really isn't that far away, just to the south some, of course, in the African continent, but it was, uh, you could get there from from Israel, and uh, we know that, perhaps the Queen of Sheba, the south, the southern peoples there, south of Egypt, um, I'm not sure exactly what's going to happen with Ethiopia. There's some question as to whether they were defeated by the Babylonians. Um, it seems uh, like the Babylonians may have been involved. Um, the Babylonians did defeat Egypt and Pharaoh Necho at the Battle of Carchemish, but that was near the Euphrates River, way off of Egypt's normal territory. And that uh, battle, by the way, Carchemish is a, a name you can remember Uh, around 605 because uh, it also finished the Assyrian Empire. Okay, so remember the Assyrian Empire was capitaled in Nineveh. That's different than the Nebuchadnezzar slash Babylonian Empire, which was, uh, the capital was in Babylon. Um, And uh, God explains in Ezekiel how he's going to use the king of Babylon to defeat Pharaoh of Egypt, but uh, Ezekiel prophesied years after this, starting in 597. So he was too late to be referring to uh, these earlier events, so that the prophecy must refer to something later. Um, not exactly sure who defeated Ethiopia or how that was done, but it was done. We can say that for sure. Uh, and then finally, we get to Assyria and her capital, Nineveh. I spent a lot of time thinking about Assyria and Nineveh today because. Um, I'm speaking on Jonah, and of course Jonah went to the great city Nineveh to preach that God was going to overthrow the city in just 40 days, but the people repented, and so God didn't do that. 
uh, as he had suggested he would if uh, evidently, you know, the understanding was if you don't repent, then that is going to be the case. Uh, by, by 100 years later, though, Nahum prophesied that Nineveh was to be destroyed fully. So Assyria was wiped out at uh, Carchemish, as I mentioned, in 605 B.C., and um, the, the, the city, verse 15, which was formerly characterized by rejoicing and pride, notice verse 15, this is the rejoicing city that dwelt securely, that said in her heart, I am it, and there is none besides me. God says, how she has become a desolation, a place for beasts to lie down. It's no city anymore, it's just ruins, isn't it? Everyone who passes by her shall hiss and shake his fist. So that is what happened with those surrounding nations. Now God's going to turn in the remaining few moments that we have to look at chapter 3. He's going to turn to Jerusalem and Jerusalem's evil and then also the future judgment and blessing that he offers on the nation. Chapter 3 opens with a section of charges against Judah concerning her sins against God. Here's a laundry list. Woe to her who is rebellious and polluted to the oppressing city. She has not obeyed his voice. She has not received correction. She has not trusted in the Lord. She has not drawn near to her God. Her princes in her midst are roaring lions. Listen to this about her leadership. This kind of one huge final charge against them. The leadership of the nation. The princes are roaring lions. The judges are evening wolves. They leave, they leave not a bone till morning. The prophets are insolent, treacherous people. The priests have polluted the sanctuary. So every one of their leadership cl class, sorry, princes, judges, prophets, priests, the thorough evil of all of the society from, from the kings on down to the lowest of leaders and the smallest of groups and the teachers of the law and the prophets, the shepherds of Israel, they're called sometimes. You know, the shepherds of Israel, that doesn't mean pastors per se, but it means the leaders, all the leaders, loaded with sin, corruption, bribery, evil. Uh, verse number four, they have done violence to the law. The Lord is righteous in her midst. He will do no unrighteousness. Every morning he brings his justice to light. He never fails, but the unjust knows no shame. God is constant in bringing his justice to light. He's righteous. He does no unrighteousness. Whatever he does in response to sin is not itself a sin. You remember when Paul asked the question in Romans 3.5, is God unjust who inflicts wrath? You know, if my sin allows God to display more of his righteous mercy, then, then, then how can God judge my sin? Because that good thing comes out of my sin. That's a really backwards way of thinking. And so the accusation is that it's, it's kind of like, it's almost like, not exactly, but almost like what's happening today. Israel's massacred, so Israel goes to punish the evildoers. So Israel is evil for doing that. We do evil, humanly, humans I'm talking about, and then God punishes. And the humans who are being punished claim that God is doing evil to them. 
oh, God shouldn't kill people. God shouldn't punish people. God shouldn't send them to the lake of fire. Says the ones who have done violence from birth. Lies, speaking, you know, speaking lies from their mother's womb. Going astray from the very beginning. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Doesn't that ring true today? Destruction and misery are in their pathways. The, the poison of asps is under their lips. They lie, they deceive, they beguile all the time. They turn any situation upside down to make it sound like what's right is wrong and what's wrong is right. And they complain that God is doing evil. No, God's not doing evil. The Lord is righteous in her midst. He will do no unrighteousness. Look, because of God's character, because of his love, his holiness, his kindness, his justice, his mercy, his, his infinite wisdom and knowledge, his omnipresence, whatever he does is just and right. All those attributes are, are integrated together in all of his conduct, in all of the ways that he's ordained things to be. And so he brings justice to light. He never fails. The unjust are the opposite of all that. Notice end of verse 5. The unjust knows no shame. They have sinful behavior, lewd, debased, debauched, perverted behavior, and it doesn't cause people to be ashamed. Can you imagine that? Instead, they take their shame and they turn it into what? The pride movement. They take shame and turn it into pride. You know, their glory is in their shame, the Apostle Paul says. And they manufacture this prideful notion that they can get away with this and even flaunt it and, and parade it about. So God uh, then turns to his statement of future judgment and blessing. So charges against the nation of Israel, very serious charges indeed, and now he turns his focus to a far future judgment after which there will be a massive regathering of the nations or a gathering of the nations followed by a salvation for them. For first, God is going to devour the earth with his jealousy. He's going to exercise that jealousy upon the idols of the nations. Verse 8, therefore wait for me, says the Lord, until the day I rise up for plunder. My determination is to gather the nations to, a, to my assembly of kingdoms, to pour on them my indignation, all my fierce anger, all the earth shall be devoured with the fire of my jealousy. You know, he's going to gather the, the nations together in the valley of Jehoshaphat, the valley of decision. And I think we could probably tie this in with um, Matthew 25 and uh, the judgment on the nations, the sheep and the goats and all of that. But then he says, after this judgment, then I will restore to the peoples a pure language that they may call on the name of the Lord. Now, um, this pure language here, excuse me as I just grab a little water. A fun little bit of eisegesis leads most Hebrew teachers to say that this pure language must be the Hebrew language. You know, everybody's going to speak Hebrew, finally. Uh, no, not really. What this is, is whatever language, whatever languages are used still on the earth, 
The idea is that this is going to flow from a change of heart. Where does the mouth come from? The output of the mouth comes from the heart. So there's going to be a change in the heart, and people are going to use pure language again. Now, the book, as we've read it so far, is full of examples of bad language. Anytime somebody calls on an idol, that's bad, right? That's impure. Their lips should never speak favorably of these idols. So God's going to purify the speech of the nations. They won't use the names of the idols anymore. The names of the Baals, that take the Baals right out of the mouth of the person. Look at chapter 2. Uh, let me see. Oh, Hosea, I'm thinking of, um, uses this. Let me see if I can find it real quick in chapter two, yeah, 2.17. For I will take from her mouth the names of the Baals, and they shall be remembered by their name no more. If a person uses pure speech, they speak godly things and do not use the name of false gods in their worship. Furthermore, the nations will no longer heap insults on the people of Israel. You know, that's not pure speech when people heap insults on the nation of Israel. They uh, will not reproach. They will not use arrogant threats against Israel. You know, I sure am glad that this fellow at Cornell was arrested. You hear about that? Threatened Jewish students on the campus. And uh, the FBI tracked down where those posts were made in social media, and they hauled that guy in, and he's in jail now. And he had his first hearing today. He's going to be charged with some pretty heavy charges, and hopefully that will be an example to people to shut their trap and restrain the evil. That's what government is there for, to restrain evil. And so I don't know if this fellow will get a, a, a dose of pure speech after this. I would pray he would be saved. But uh, that's what's going to happen in the future. These pure speech people are giving evidence of regeneration, which is accomplished by the circumcision of the heart, and the circumcision, if I might add, of the lips as well. They will be ashamed uh, of their past deeds, but not be shamed for any of their deeds because their past will be forgiven, any of their new deeds, I should say. Their past will be forgiven and their present behavior would be holy, not haughty like it was before. They won't tell lies. Their speech will be pure without deceit. And the Bible adds that uh, they will they have peace all the way around. Um, from the, Beyond the rivers of Ethiopia, my worshipers, the daughter of my dispersed ones, shall bring my offspring, or my offering, rather. In that day you shall not be shamed for any of your deeds in which you transgress, for then I will take away from your midst those who rejoice in your pride. They shall no longer be haughty in my holy mountain. Instead, God will leave in their midst a meek and humble people. That's the kind of people we want to be, isn't it? Meek and humble, like God's going to leave there in the end time. The remnant of Israel shall do no unrighteousness and speak no lies, nor shall a deceitful tongue be found in their mouth. For They shall feed their flocks and lie down, and no one shall make them Afraid, And so God concludes with a uh, note of great joy to the people. Sing, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Be glad and rejoice with all your heart. This is what's going to happen to you. You're going to be cleansed. You're going to have a pure lip, a pure tongue, a pure speech. Your hearts will be regenerated. O daughter of Jerusalem, the Lord has taken away your judgments. He's cast out your enemy. The King of Israel, 
The Lord is in your midst. You shall see disaster no more. The people will be strengthened by his presence. Those who are presently burdened by the sin of their surroundings are the type of people God will raise up, gather, bless, and give worldwide notoriety. Okay, let me bring that down to this lower shelf where we sit. You're burdened by sin in the world, around you, in you, uh, in your family. But just know that God is present with you, and that is enough to help us to be able to rejoice. And in the end time, he's going to have his presence even more greatly manifested among us so that we can enjoy blessing of that presence. And when you have the presence of God, what else do you need? What else do you need? They can sing and they should sing. They can be glad and rejoice with all their hearts and so can we because God will have forgiven them and removed their enemies. God certainly has forgiven us. And uh, furthermore, in that future time, he's going to exalt the nation of Israel. The Lord God is in your midst. That's where all the goodness comes at the end of this prophecy, isn't it? The Lord is in your midst. The repeated refrain throughout Scripture is God will be their God and they will be his people. When God is near, there's no reason to fear or to be made weak. He will save. He will quiet you with his love. He will rejoice over you with singing. Verse 17, gather those who sorrow And this is true across the ages and will be the experience of all believers eventually. So I'm going to have to stop there because we're out of time basically and we've gone for about a half an hour. I thank you for coming. I hope that this is an encouragement to you. One of the burdens that I have is to show that um, with these minor prophets, they're not so far away as 2,500 years or 2,800 years would suggest, or 2,400, you know, over 2,000 years. They're pretty close, actually. The heart of, the, the heart of man is still the same. The uh, opposition to the nation of Israel is still the same. The need for regeneration is still the same. The need for the presence of God is still the same. Well, what else can I say? That God's word is profitable, isn't it? Even if it's old, it's still good. Father, thank you for the privilege of seeing in your word these present truths, even though they're ancient ones too. Uh, Help me to expound them well in the next days as I have opportunity with some other believers and uh, for these ones as well. Oh Lord, we are grateful for your kindness um, to allow us to read them, to have them in our hand in the word of God. May each one be encouraged and strengthened and, uh, and helped by the truth of Zephaniah, that although there will be great judgment for sin, there will also be great blessing that you pour out upon your people. May we be a meek and humble people like God you call us to be. In Jesus' name, amen.